the the coaches that I have had the most respect for over my career and the ones that I have really like been um, like I, I've really like I've really admired are the ones who can detach themselves from all the textbook information they've learned and they can see the problem for what it is in front of them by analyzing context and analyzing what's happening. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. In this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast, we dive into the murky world of movement efficiency. So Matt Jordan, who appears on this episode, has written the Movement Efficiency chapter in High Performance Training for Sports 2nd Edition, which was released uh, over the last couple of months. So in this episode, we dive into what movement efficiency actually is, why there is so much confusion around it, and Matt does an amazing job, as he always does, of unpicking it and trying to communicate that in an effective way, which, as I say, he does an incredible job of, despite it being such a difficult area to talk about and decipher. So if you're interested in this area of movement efficiency, which everyone pretty much is, because this is what everyone's trying to make athletes better at, to move better, move more efficient, um, this episode will absolutely blow your mind. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. So as practitioners, we're always on the lookout for innovative ways to support athletic development and recovery. And one brand that is making an impact in elite sport is Hytro, a wearable BFR training solution that unlocks the incredible benefits of BFR to include significant recovery and training advantages. So their BFR straps are integrated in shorts and tees, delivering BFR to groups of athletes safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. And for December, get 25% off Hytro using the code PACEY25. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Matt. Matt Jordan, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast for the third time, I believe. I do believe. Yeah, it's been a while. Great to see you again. Likewise. Likewise. I'm certain, I'm just looking at myself here on the left, I'm certain looking a little bit more disheveled. Um, I know. You're looking fresh, though. Looking very oh. well. I, it's it's a uh, it is absolutely an optical illusion. I'm feeling <laughs> any, anything but fresh. <laughs> I feel wilted. Nice. 
and, and you have good reason you have good reason for feeling a little tired sir congratulations yes. thank you very much thank you very Baby much for, Alice. So yeah cute. for 14 weeks in to the Amazing. to the chaos and i was asking Congrats. you why did no one tell me what it what it was going to entail oh yeah because you always get, tell you, people yeah not to go into the baby chat too much, but you just get the old, um, oh, enjoy your sleep while you can get it. And you're like, oh, I know. You're like, oh, one. give over. Well, but then yeah. I probably do the same. <laughs> yeah, I'll no, no, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, a little bit of bio from you, a little bit of an intro. I mean, I know the longer ones we can probably, people can dive into previous episodes no, yeah. that, you've, that you've come to get, that you've, you've come on and, uh, and joined me for. But a bit yeah. of an update would be um, the order of the day, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I always say, you know, my roots are as a strength and conditioning coach and a sport physiologist. It's kind of where I spent the bulk of my career. Uh, but the update is that, um, yeah, you know, after a long time in the in the world of Olympic sport and, you know, face to face with athletes and doing what I love, uh, a position came up here at the University, uh, University of Calgary, a, a professor position, well, assistant professor position over in, in kinesiology and, and kind of affiliated with our sport medicine center. And, uh, yeah, so I took it. I mean, uh, I took the job and it's, uh, it's great because I, I mean, the only thing I love more than coaching athletes and being on the floor is working with students and teaching and being around people who love to learn about the things that we love to talk about. So, um, I couldn't be happier. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in that role and, Continue to continue to forge ahead with uh, online digital education for uh, sport science, sport medicine, strength and conditioning practitioners, and yeah, things are good. Things are good. But that's still a big part of it is still with the institute. Is that right? Yeah, it, I'm still absolutely. So the Canadian Sport Institute Calgary, which is like you know, I kind of call it my first home. It's. Uh, one of four Olympic training centers. Um, I've got a quarter of my time carved off to keep running our uh, return to performance research program. Like it's kind of like the main push is all of the all of the work that we put in around uh, how the neuromuscular system you know becomes impaired after ACL injury and and how we help athletes get back to health, back to sport, back to performance, and you know big emphasis on back to performance. Like that's where what we care about, and it's a bit nebulous, but. Um, in terms of how to define that, but you know, we've got a beautiful strength and power lab. I've got some awesome, awesome students, people I work with, Nate Morris, Drew Lawson, both graduated with their masters recently and they're killing it up there. Uh, Isabel Aldrich Witt, who's a physiotherapist, who's also doing her masters with Walter Herzog and myself, who's just killing it as well. And, you know, literally it's a, it's a cool environment. I'm not up there as much as I used to be and as much as I would like because of the new job, but now we got, you know, Izzy's our physio. She's seeing like 10, 12 athletes a day back to back, collecting data, you know, doing her mat, working her magic. I'm just so honored to be working with those, uh, with that crew at the Institute. So yeah, absolutely still there. And I, I couldn't do it without them. So it's a big part of my identity and my, and my love for what I do. Sounds like a good balance. So like a really cool balance for you. But one yeah, thing I want to, one thing I want to dive into with you today is movement efficiency. And as we just oh, yeah. talked about before, murky area, but one oh, that yeah. you did very well to navigate in High Performance Training for Sports Second Edition. And I knew, yeah. obviously knew that looked at the list and saw that you that's the, the chapter that you've taken on. And I thought, how's yeah. he gonna I wonder how this is gonna go? Where is this it's probably one of the ones that you just don't know how it's gonna turn oh. out, how where which way <laughs> direction you go with it but so hopefully we can get we can dive into that chapter and, yeah uh, and yeah, yeah. build it out a little bit so the great first tea thing, up 
Yes. And can I just and can I just just add a, a just a one little bit of flavor for the the viewership and audience that might be listening is when when DJ Dave Joyce said, "Hey Matt, I want you to write on this topic." It wasn't I didn't get to choose this. It was assigned to me, and uh, you know I was saying to you before we kicked this off, like I I I absolutely knew as you said, I was getting into the murky waters of a, a very nebulous topic uh, and, a, and a challenging topic. And I, yeah, I, I, I knew full well what I was getting into. Um, and, and let's just say it was, it was a hard one to write, not because I didn't enjoy the process and certainly not because I wasn't interested in it, but, but because of, of, of how hard it is to write about this topic. So mm-hmm. we'll get into it. <laughs> Perfectly. The tea up for the tea up. Um, yeah. So first, I suppose the first place to start is, is what, looks like an easy question but what is movement efficiency oh i couldn't What's even your version I, of movement efficiency i couldn't even here's how here's how complicated <laughs> this was in my head i didn't even want to say movement efficiency okay i i actually wanted to call it efficiency of movement and i okay. know i know you're like what are you talking about <laughs> because there are well held you know physio exercise physiology constructs like mechanical efficiency that describe things that we actually measure and understand a bit better. Right. And so when I was, when I was, uh, when I was writing, as I was going along this, this uh, first step was, you know, talking about how do I capture this in an authentic way? And I kind of went back and forth a little bit to say, you know, I want to keep it efficiency of movement and not movement efficiency. uh, So as not to confuse the readers about, about where I stood on the topic. Anyways, so, I mean, the first part's kind of easy to write about, I think, uh, which is we understand the, the mechanical or the bioenergetic term mechanical efficiency. So, you know, that was a, a, relative, a relatively fun piece to write because I, I took it from the angle of what, you know, so obviously you, we generate a certain amount of energy and just like a car, we are not perfectly efficient, efficient when we transfer that, that internal energy into external work. So, you know, we, we lose stuff in the process and, uh, you know, that's just, um, by virtue of the fact that, you know, we are, you know, you, you lose energy to inefficiencies to, you know, whatever else that might be happening. So, um, the first part obviously is I, I, I dove in pretty heavily on mechanical efficiency and I took the angle of of talking about the neuromuscular system, which is where obviously my passions lie. So talking about some properties of muscle and how they might adapt to training and, you know, the things that may influence mechanical efficiency. And then that was the first half. And then the second half was really the challenge where, you know, I think, uh, talking to Dan Noble, I don't know if you, if you've ever interviewed Mm -hmm. Dan, but he's a strength coach from Toronto and he happened to be in Calgary for, uh, he's working with the women's hockey team and they had a big camp here. And, uh, I was talking to Dan, I'm like, Dan, like, what's the word? I'm trying to explain this to him. I'm like, what's the word that describes this idea of an athlete who can, who can find this broad range of solutions to problems at hand and can do this in a way that they're able to meet um, these unknown challenges, challenges that may arise on the field of play in the boxing ring, wherever it may be, but they can do this and they can do it better than anybody. And we were going back and forth and he's like, I think we call it movement adaptability. And we talked about this from the notion of, you know, within the, within the world of capturing sort of, sort of the more, um, yeah, the more, you know, some themes around movement variability and skill acquisition and, um, you know, and, and that was kind of the second umbrella term, Rob, that I used for the second half of the chapter. Um, and that's where things 
that's where things get into a bit of the weeds, right? Or not the weeds, but it gets a little more murky. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it thoroughly to write it. And so, yeah. As you mentioned that, I mean, you used a, a stat, was it a sprint cycling? Our lack of, sorry, our energy to actually produce, uh, that energy that would produce, how much, what percentage of that actually goes to moving the bike itself? Yeah. That was quite, that was quite interesting, actually. I know it probably made sense, but it's like 30% or something like that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah. even lower. Yeah. Just a little simple yeah. stat like that impressed me. I'm a simple mind map. Yeah, no, no, I know. I mean, me too. And, and, you know, I don't, I mean, although I, I kind of say from a scientific standpoint, I, I certainly classify myself more as a, an exercise physiologist, muscle physiologist than I do a biomechanist or anything else. Um, based on my, my training, I, I was actually sharing an office with a guy named Louis Passfield, who's published on a lot of these papers in, in cyclists. Uh, this is one of my colleagues here at the U he was at Kent university. Uh, he, he moved to Calgary a few years ago and, and is a wonderful human. But he, you know, he and I talked a little bit about this and yeah, I kind of took some of his research actually to, you know, as I was exploring the topic and kind of gives you a sense from a mechanical efficiency standpoint that there's, there's some room to move. (laughs) We got some room to move to create more efficient, you know, and and true by proper sense of the word. Like how do we, how do we help athletes convert a higher fraction of their internal energy into the type of work that makes us move? Mm -hmm. So one one thing that I picked on picked up on at the end, and you put some nice figures in there and nice nice tables and whatnot, and it was understanding the movement solution tendencies of a of an individual athlete. Then that got me thinking. Okay, we need to understand this. There's a nice little schematic there for people to to kind of work their way through. But how do we actually try to understand that in the field, in the wild? Would it would it be an athlete one on one? Or would that be a even more complex uh, a team sport environment? So I'd love to get your thoughts on diving a bit deeper in that. You know, I, I mean, I think I think this is where you know this is where um, you know maybe maybe I'll talk to talk to about. I'm, tr- I'm trying to keep this in my lane, so I'm not you know B- BSing the world here because you know, hey, let's be honest. Like this is this is uh, I just full full transparency. If I if I if I, I would be lying if I said this isn't a very difficult thing to capture, but let's just talk about it from a scientific perspective. Um, you know, one, one way that, uh, today I'm currently exploring this from a scientific standpoint is, uh, I work with a, a company in Vancouver called Plantiga and they do a, a smart insole. Basically it's an IMU and, you know, with IMU you're measuring movement and acceleration and stuff like that. And, and, um, you know, when, when, uh, when individuals run, uh, when they walk, uh, when they, um, when they jump, but more when they run and walk, like, let's say you're to capture a, you know, I don't know, five minute run. Um, you can, you can absolutely see movement variability at hand in the signal. And, and you can see if you, we, we call these things movement maps, but you plot it's like a phase map where you plot what the left is doing while the right is like le- what the left is doing relative to the right. So, you know, you get these beautiful pictures of, you know, how your left moves relative to your right over time. Well, not over time, but like, um, you know, the signals just kind of repeated on top of mm-hmm. itself. But mm-hmm. you can see, you know, it's uh, it's like those uh, sketches that you see sometimes in, in uh, some of the literature on this where they'll say, like, write your name five times fast. You know, and I write Matt, 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 Matt. And obviously each iteration of Matt approximates the first one, but no, it is never perfectly like the, the words are not perfectly letters are not perfectly on top of each other. Right. It's the same thing here. We can actually measure that and we can see it in the signal. 
Um, we can calculate uh, stride length variability. So, you know, if people are walking and running and we can look at how much variability is there in terms of that length. And uh, it's really interesting to note, first of all, is that on that level, I think there's going to be some, you know, I think down, down the road in, in the next, in the next, you know, five years, 10 years, as we improve with our wearable tech and machine learning and all these things, I think there'll be opportunities for us to quantify this a bit better. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my interest from a scientific standpoint. And certainly we can see when people have ACL injuries, when they've got, um, you know, other things going on, we'll see reductions in variability that occur. Um, we might see variability in terms of the peaks of, of their, of their acceleration signal. Um, and, um, and, uh, it's a, it's obviously, a you know, if you look at the scientific literature, that's a whole thing in and of itself. But then I think the second thing that you're talking about is more now really harnessing the complexity of, of this. Like when you, when you see players on the field of play doing what they do, the magic to be able to hit free throws from any angle and any position and in all these situations and to create brilliant masterpieces of, 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 of solutions to, to problems. Um, I think that's where Rob, we need more scaffolding and we need a little bit at this stage, to be honest with you, we need some heuristics, right? Like we need some scaffolding and ways to slice and dice this problem um, so that we can understand it. And all I would say is that um, that's what I try to get across to the, to the readers in in this chapter is um, I, I used a constraints led approach as kind of an anchor point, which is not the only anchor point for how we, you know, require skills. And you, you may know that this uh, Newell's model has internal physiological constraints and task constraints and environmental constraints, and there's perception and action. And then obviously these couplings of these various constraints and how we perceive and act are, are what generate a broad range of solutions. And I tried to frame this up to say that we may not know exactly how to create the next, uh, uh, you know, LeBron, or we may not be able to create the next, you know, messy or whatever it is, but, um, you know, it may, it may not be by design, but I said that the, you know, in the chapter tried to present this model as those being the levers we could pull to help develop that skill set in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in an athlete. And, you know, again, this idea of helping create the scaffolding and the framework for players to acquire skills and acquire the movement capacities, the movement adaptability to be able to display, you know, the sorts of skills that they need to on the field of play. So Mm -hmm. two pieces, you know, stuff that I think we can measure uh, eventually. And I can see it coming down line, you know, as I do more in the space and then obviously a a framework for how coaches can apply maybe some thinking here to help um, work in this murky area. Cool. Talking about frameworks, one again, one thing that you present in the, in the chapter, the strength training framework for mechanical efficiency. Let's have a little chat about that because you, you start off in the chapter talking about the force length and the force velocity relationships, which people probably heard of and familiar with, or think they're familiar with it, but it'd be good to get a bit of a refresh of, of why that, why that, those explanations and this featured in this chapter. And then you have a little chat about isometric training, which we can, we can dive into also, but yeah, I suppose a, a bit of an overview of this section would be would be really interesting and in, in why you think it's necessary to provide this framework to the reader. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a nutshell, and and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna just acknowledge, uh, you know, one of the one of my colleagues now, and and you know, guy I did my PhD under, and man, I've had no shortage of amazing conversations with him is uh, Walter Herzog, who's a mm-hmm. Very well known by biome- biomechanist, but he was a coach first, so we we talk about this stuff all the time, and in 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 this in this context, and 
he did some kind of the first study that I'm aware of that that maybe pointed to how adaptive our neuromuscular systems are to the types of training that we do, right? Specific adaptation to the imposed demand, like our bodies adapt to how we train, was he did a study in, um, I think it was like uh, probably in the early 90s, but where he compared, um, he looked at the rectus femoris muscle, it's a two-joint muscle, obviously crosses the hip and the knee, and he uh, did some um, measurements of the muscle force length relationship. So essentially, um, you know, on a dynamometer, uh, we did some math, figured out, you know, essentially the, the contribution that rectus femoris would have to the overall knee extension torque, and then recreated these um, muscle, you know, muscle force versus angle relationships. And he did this to compare cyclists and runners. And, and what he was interested in was, well, you know, cyclists are in a completely different posture than runners because they stay on a saddle with their hip flexed as they pedal. And, um, and, and runners obviously are in this extended position at the hip where their muscle works differently. And so his whole exploration experimentally of this was to say, how does the sport that you do influence the relationship and very cool little study right but when you look at the data it's like wow it's amazing you know the 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 cyclists tend tended to have a relationship where they were stronger at shorter lengths and the runners had the exact opposite where they were they had a relationship where they were stronger at longer lengths for the for the muscle and so you know, this was kind of like a first for me as a coach uh, and as a you know a scientist. It's like the one of the first studies, not the only one, that just to show that you know our mechanical efficiency does um, you know. And again, I'm I'm stretching it back to mechanical efficiency, but it, it's why it's why. And this goes back to more our speculation, and maybe one day someone will prove us wrong on this, but I doubt it. It's why you've never seen a world championship cyclist also be a world championship runner. You know, like you, you, you can be pretty good at both. Like triathletes are clear examples of this, but you know, at some point in time, sports specialization just takes you too far away from, from being able to be good at both because our muscles adapt to how we train. So that was the, the one notion around the force length relationship. Uh, we also talked about in the chapter about, um, tying the force length relationship into how, how, so I had a, a, an image in there about um, an athlete jumping and how, um, you know, one of the things that may happen is that, you know, an athlete may choose the joint angles and the positions and postures that optimize their muscle power in a jump. And so I had this image of like, you know, an, an athlete jumping at, you know, three, three different depths, but there's only one depth, obviously, that is their sort of optimal length for generating force. And, you know, just again, just to add on this, Rob is an, another really kind of cool little study that we're working on here in, in Calgary is we've got, um, you know, winter sports, obviously where you, where you, you know, skate, which is, it's got its own nuance, like you're gliding and you're on ice. You've got bobsledders who are essentially like really strong and fast sprinters. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, they move a heavy sled to get going. And then eventually that sled's moving faster than a car. Right. And they've got to kind of keep up and jump in. And then we've got alpine skiers who also have a complete different, completely different type of movement because it's the potential energy of the hill and their quasi isometric eccentric uh, muscle actions that sort of uh, absorb energy and allow them to kind of like maximize their speed. 
And, um, you know, again, you know, just to give some, some experimental evidence that might support that notion is when you take a look at these different sports and you compare how they jump and you compare their mechanical muscle properties in, the, in a counter movement jump, let's say, um, it really seems to be the case that how you jump and how you maximize jump height kind of depends on your training history, right? So, you know, presumably what's happened is years of sports specialization, you've adapted, your neuromuscular system's adapted, and it's made you find ways to be the most efficient in a jump by using the postures and positions that work for your body. And, and so it's another example where, you know, again, I think we can, we can sort of say that our basic muscle properties like the force velocity relationship, our power velocity relationship, our, you know, force length and, you know, torque joint angle relationship and how we express that in whole body movements like jumping, they seem to be very much adaptable to training, very much adaptable to the type of sports we do. And obviously that becomes another lever that coaches can pull to say, hey, if I want to engineer a body here, you know, how can I tap into some of these, uh, some of these notions with training to be able to shift things that matter and bring the athletes closer towards what they need to be, to be able to perform at the highest level. So mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a few examples there, I think, where that ties in. Yeah, it was something that I spoke to Danny Lum about when we discussed isometrics, and I think he was working with, I think he was actually working with sprint cyclists and had concocted exercises and put these guys in joint angles that they were going to experience in their sport to obviously maximise force at them given angles. For something, I mean, you used similar examples in the, in the chapter. For sports, for team sports... How important is that to identify not those ranges because they're, they're working in all sorts of ranges and using counter movement yeah. jump an example and using my personal experience as a as a defender jumping to win headers for someone training them those kind of athletes to to jump and win headers or jump for a um, a line out in rugby or jump for a yeah. ball in American football how specific. Should we be getting and, and and should we be concerned with getting that specific when it comes to the joint angles that we use and potentially use some of the tools that that Danny spoke about, which was which was isometric training? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, and I think this kind of now comes back to uh, a scaffolding in terms of how we're going to analyze the problem. But I mean, the first question is kind of like, well, you know, to me as always, well, how do you play the game? Mm -hmm. And, um, often, you know, I know, I know hockey, like ice hockey is not, you know, necessarily the most, um, popular sport in, in, uh, in Europe, but, um, certainly and in the UK, but certainly like everyone probably knows Wayne Gretzky, you know, who was, uh, yeah. one of, you know, was a famous, uh, Canadian hockey player. And man, this guy just had the capacity to see the game. Like it's, it's like unbelievable anticipation, unbelievable ability to read plays and to do things that nobody else could do. And it's so interesting that um, one of my colleagues here at the university used to test Wayne Gretzky oh, wow. in Victoria when he was part of the Canadian hockey system, like sort of coming up as a, as a junior and into the national team program. And, you know, it's just, it's just interesting to hear her, you know, this is now, you know, 40 years old data, right? Wise, but she's like, you know, he's, he wasn't a physical he didn't play the game through speed, power, and strength. He played the game through finesse and reading. Like it was just how, you know, so I think that's the first answer, the first part of the answer to the question that I would really challenge the readers or the, the audience when, when we're thinking about this in terms of like now efficiency of movement partly is like, well, how do you, how does that person play the game? And what, how do they, how do they 
how do they dominate and how do, I think that's a, a careful, uh, an important starting point. But let's just move on from there and just really stay focused on a simplistic example. Like I, I think that the jump is a great idea. Like if you're a defender and what, and what your, you know, what you need to be able to do is to create the maximum jump height, but you need to do it in a short amount of time. Because obviously if I can jump faster than you and, and I need to displace down, you know, my downward displacement is less and I, I can get off the ground quicker, you know, even though you and I might have equivalent jump heights, I'm always going to beat you to the ball unless you anticipate and get ahead of me, right? Um, and again, if I just go back to what we see in some of our winter sport athletes, which is sort of like how Walter studied the adaptations of, uh, you know, the, the runners versus the cyclists we absolutely see different ways that people jump based on how they train and how they perform and what they do in their sport. So I would certainly think that, you know, part of my strategy, if I was a strength conditioning coach or fitness coach working with players who needed to play the game in that respect, i.e. I need to be able to maximize my time um, in the air, minimize my time on the ground. Um, I think that the strategies to make individuals fast jumpers, to make them sort of more of a fast stretch, short and cycle type, type jumper, which now plays into where are you strong, um, is a essentially uh, or is an essential part of the of the calculus. And we know it's adaptable. So if I train you at specific ranges of motion, we know that you'll get stronger there. So um, I think it's a I think it's a clever a clever way to to approach it. And yeah. I, I certainly one I would I would be. Um, I would be in support of um, just to, you know, to fine tune how we approach problems of, of translating what we do in the gym to sport performance. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, we dive deeper into the, not only the philosophical, but the objective side of mechanical and movement efficiency. So a great part two, as always, coming up with Matt. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram, at iMeasureU. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Fusion Sport. So Smarterbase by Fusion Sport is the leading human performance solution for elite sport, military, government, and workplace health. Smarterbase provides organizations with a central hub for the holistic human performance management of their teams. 
highly configurable and integrating with other systems and wearables. Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's best, most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, the Australian Institute of Sport, and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organisations, performance centres, teams and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at Output Sports where you can schedule a demo. And now back to the episode with Matt Jordan. It's interesting, I had a, I had a guy on uh, came on the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he was a well, he'd been a head of sports science, he'd been a fitness coach, he'd been an assistant coach and a, and a head coach in, in, uh, in football across Europe. And he ended up at the Seattle Sounders, Adam Owen, who was performance director, and now he's back in the UK doing lots of uh, coach education stuff. And it comes up a lot with the, the guys that have that hybrid technical, physical approach and have probably done both roles of how a deep understanding of the sport is so necessary, especially in yeah. football that is going that way with the European influence and whatnot. And that yeah. is just another example of, for me, maybe because it's, I believe this is right. So I'm, this is what I'm hearing from what you say, but it's understanding and watching the game, not only watching the game, but understanding that that rugby player to jump for a line out or that American football player to, to jump and, and yeah. catch the ball that guy is different to that guy. His strategy to do that on the field, not on a force play, but on the yeah. on the field, sure. is this. That guy's strategy is completely different, and it's this. Yeah. And understanding those to be able to create solutions for those two people. Absolutely, and and you know this is this is exactly in the very final part of the chapter I presented. Just you know, honestly, just a what I hoped would be a, a simple kind of recursive loop of how over time as, um, as practitioners, we are constantly in this mode of moving from skills to context and back again, as, as an athlete adapts over their career. And, you know, I think like a, an example I'd give Rob is like, you know, let sorry, I'll, I'll play it a little bit more to my strength. Um, in terms of sports I've worked with, but like take boxing. Sorry, right? I keep giving ex- English examples, don't I? And kill oh, no worries. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just, Sorry, I just, I just need to be super careful. Yeah, I just don't want to. I just don't want to. Like you know how it is. Like I, I of course, I, uh, I understand. But this, this is one I, I rely on. So I, I got it. Plays mate. so well to my, 
You take throwing a punch though, right? Like, I mean, you know, you got you guys got some you guys got some pretty awesome uh, UK heavyweights yeah. right now too, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, it's pretty good. You guys, I, I, I've been really enjoying uh, yeah. really enjoying watching them. But you know, throwing a punch is the same sort of thing. Like, it's it's like you have to learn the rules before you can break the rules. And so, you know, as a you know, I often say like I, I love boxing and I love to I love to do it. I'm horrible at it, but I I love going down and hitting the bag and you know sometimes doing a little bit of sparring and you know just like I, I have no intention of, of of doing anything beyond that. But um, this club I train at in the city, like it's it, it, like the fundamentals of throwing a good jab and throwing a good cross and how you the mechanics of how you do that is like. Uh, the coach down there teaches whether you're the pro or you're uh, a beginner like me, like they, he teaches this as though it's the most important thing you'll ever learn is the fundamental skills and the fundamental way to generate, um, you know, your, your effective striking, and especially with the jab, which sets everything up, you know, like that, that that's always say it's like a fundamental punch because your timing, your range, um, you know, it's defensive, it's offensive, it sets all your combinations up. And so there's so much time spent on this fundamental skill, and as a beginner, I need to learn that rule before I can break the rule. But when you watch a pro fight, you know, they can now throw jabs from different positions and angles and different ways because they've, they understand, this, they've learned the skill, which now allows them to create solutions in very authentic and, and novel ways. And I think that that's where, you know, again, in this last chapter or this last uh, figure of the chapter, it's like, okay, so... You're working in this context. How is a coach constantly working through from skill? And again, whether you're the best in the world or you're the beginner, you always come back to skill as a, as a, in your in your periodization of skill acquisition. Like, because there's some basic fundamentals that you don't want to get away from. How do you create contextual um, uh, contextual relevance for the skill and allow creation of new ways to apply the skill? Um, how do you do it on demand when fatigued? you know, when, when you have to perform. And then again, back to that iterative loop, it's like, I think, I think as coaches, we constantly have to be coming back to say, okay, how does, how does this play into this person's strategy on the field in context? And I think you nailed that, right? It's like, well, how do you play the game first? Let's understand the context and then let's try to, to move from there in terms of how we want to train. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, I'll just, I'll end on this note here on this thought, but, um, Shout out to Jeremy Shepard. He's also an author on the on one of the chapters, mm-hmm. but he'll often say it's like we're we're servants to we're servants to performance. Like that is that is our highest purpose is performance. My role may be as a strength and conditioning coach to make you strong, make you fast, make you jump better. But we always have to remember that that role is not the purpose. The purpose is performance, and we serve that. And and it's now trying to think, okay, like me teaching you to jump and to improve your, you know, whatever it may, whatever it may be, may be an absolute essential thing for you. But in another case, it may not be the most important thing to be focusing on. And, uh, I think that's the, that's the, that's where we get a bit murky, but, but that's where we got to use our brains and, and, and come at it from both angles. Not to get into too much into the philosophical stuff, cause I'll bring it back to the numbers in a second, but do we, and I'm talking we as, as strength and conditioning coaches often lose sight of that. That our job, and it's like I think whatever industry you're in, you think everyone's got the most important job and the hardest job. Yeah. But do we often that disconnect does come into play 
when we're when we're doing exactly what you've just said of of losing that connection with yeah. us being servants of performance rather than the other way around. Like, why is the head coach taking time off the S and C? Because you know we, we've we've got a shot a day, but they're keeping the technical stuff. Like, and then kicking yeah. off about that. Well, because you're just a part of the puzzle, and they're actually going to get better when they're on the field. So that yeah. kind of thing. I'm just getting yeah interested to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's um, I think we are we are at my experience is we we're, you know the people I people are prone to this you know strength and conditioning coaches are prone to this and it's and it's and it's because um well, I'll give you an example of where I often see it is that you'll see sometimes with young coaches right it's mm-hmm. like you and I and I'm guilty of this by the way so I can say it without without pointing a finger because I can point it right back at myself. <laughs> when I was a young coach uh, and starting off, um, whatever I had just learned or whatever I had just done or wherever my passion was at a given time was kind of what I felt was most important for my athletes. So, you know, I would go through, I, I was, a, I competed in weightlifting for a few years, loved, you know, so, but, so of course all my, I, I saw the lens of sport performance and my contribution as I've got to teach my athletes weightlifting because the best way to create, uh, you know, to create a platform for them to train and have, you know, have improvements in their sport performance was to have them snatch and have them clean because I loved it. It was fun to coach. And it was at that time how I saw the lens of what I, what my job was. And uh, just to give you a sense of, you know, where, where, you know, now I, maybe I move on and I go to a seminar and I learn something else. And now, now that becomes my, my thing, right? Because now I'm seeing it this way and I move on. So, oh, now I see it this way. And, and, you know, you constantly see that your philosophy of training kind of evolves with where you're interested <laughs> and what you awesome. like. But then as you get to a place where you're down the road and, and maybe you've been doing this for, for a minute or two, you, you start to see that great coaches are putting an analysis of the athlete and the context and the sport first. And, and they're, they're putting their own interests of a distant second, you know, so it becomes now, what does this person need? How, how do I dress training needs with the, with the right solution? And, and the right, the right approach for the given time I'm in, how am I not too attached to my own ideas and drinking my own Kool-Aid that I'm getting too lost into what I think matters and shit, Rob, if there's, sorry, sorry to drop the, drop a little bit of a swear word there, but you know, shit, if there's, if there's no, if there's one thing where, where I've never seen, you know, the one area of conflict that I see on interdisciplinary performance teams, because I work in them a lot and I, um, I'm trying to lead them. It's when people confuse their role for the purpose and you have a pissing match between people about what their job is and why their job's more important than your job. And we're, and, and honestly, that is a, that is not just for strength and conditioning coaches. It is a, it is a natural human inclination to put your needs first and the things that you think are most important as the most important thing for everybody. So, um, certainly an area for us to all be better at. 100%. And I think, like yeah. I said, I think every industry is guilty of it and every human is probably guilty of it as well. But... Can, can, so, I, can I say one more piece? Sorry, I don't mean it. to get into the weeds, but I'll just say, I'll say one more thing. The, the coaches that I have had the most respect for over my career and the ones that I have really like been um, 
like I, I've really, like I've really admired are the ones who can detach themselves from all the textbook information they've learned and they can see the problem for what it is in front of them by analyzing context and analyzing what's happening. And so it's like this capacity to remove everything you've learned, everything that you think you know, to see a new situation for what it is. Why is this athlete presenting with this solution? Why is the athlete doing it like this? Um, you know, what, what, and that question, like that capacity to kind of leave everything and see it for what it is, and then to generate solutions around, uh, training solutions around that, um, uh, that person, that context in a, in a very like creative way, uh, where you're pulling in on good principles and good training science and all those things, but you're able to not get locked into one way of thinking. It's a massive skill. And the, and the best coaches I know can do that like on the spot. So who would be, uh, who would be a good example? I'm putting you on the spot now. Oh, you know, uh, you know, who comes to mind is, uh, Andy O'Brien. There's a guy, I don't know if you've ever had Andy on, on your no, podcast, but Andy's, Andy's a great, he's a, he's a Canadian strength and conditioning coach. Um, he's a, um, he, I mean, honestly, he's notable because he was, uh, the personal strength coach to Sidney Crosby, who's another great Canadian hockey player. Uh, but, um, so Andy led the Pittsburgh Penguins over a couple, I think they won two Stanley cups together uh, with him in, in the lead of the, of the, of the, of the sport performance side of things at uh, the Penguins. And, you know, there's a great example of a guy who works with all kinds of athletes from all kinds of sports. And he's just got, you know, he just analyzes problems a little differently. Um, thinks a little differently. And, he, and he's not, he's not like, I've also seen coaches who, 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 who analyze problems differently and they're absolutely squirrely in how they think they need to approach problems. But Andy's got this capacity to kind of like break it down, see what's going on, figure out what needs to get done, pull from his toolbox, pull people in as he needs to, um, and to kind of create um, outside the box thinking uh, that's, that still gets results and it's not, you know, it's, and it's, and it actually makes sense. Um, so there's a guy that I definitely hold in high regard there. Noted. Love a recommendation, Matt. Absolutely yeah. love a recommendation. So back to the numbers, back to the um, back to the, the, the strength training framework. Loading for mechanical efficiency was a note that I put on the um, the things that I fired over. Because again, there's a the little table in there in the chapter which which explains this. But I'd love to get you just to get a bit more depth on your reasonings and, and your how you would load when the purpose is mechanical efficiency. And we're talking about resi- like strength training. Yeah, strength, strength, the strength training. training. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, and again, I can, I, I'm, I'm fortunate that this is another question that I can kind of like play into my my background and my in my history because, um, yeah, it was a real issue. I, I mean, I worked with our Canadian cross-country ski team for, um, yeah, three or four Olympic cycles. And, um, you know, really... I really enjoyed the process because um, it's an example where in the absence of using some science, people's intuition about how to train for endurance sport can be completely wrong. 
And so when you, when you just do a high level analysis and you don't really, and this is, this is where, again, I think it's a good example, Rob, where you, you need to think about this. It's not just walking in and being like context. I'm going to go with my instincts and my gut here and see what I see. And I'm going to go with, you, we, we need to blend both, right? Like that's the whole point. Um, and, and when you talk to people who work in those sports, the number one thing that people often say is, well, you're an endurance athlete, so you should train strength endurance. And so people typically train with, you know, low load, high repetition schemes, um, you know, and they, and they have a, a, a slant on how to train. But what the, what the science shows is that when you think about the three main contributors to endurance performance, your VO2 max, relatively genetically determined, right? You don't, you know, it's hard to, hard to make big shifts in that depending upon your, your genetics, your, uh, your lactate threshold, um, which is as a key a key marker and a key thing around endurance exercise performance, and then you've got your movement economy, um, which is you know I, I, the way I put it simply you know in a simple analogy, it's like you know you're driving a pickup truck on the highway versus a hybrid. You know it's like your it's your oxygen uh, consumption at a given speed, right? That we're we're often looking at. So you put somebody on a treadmill and you measure oxygen consumption, and 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 what we see is that resistance training has a profound effect on that aspect of endurance performance. And so, um, and it's not by doing high repetition, uh, you know, strength endurance oriented training. It's actually through developing maximal muscle strength, rate of force development capacity, stretch shortened cycle ability, AKA, AKA plyometric ability or reactive strength. It are, it is all those things that we associate with speed power sports that actually help the endurance athlete become more economical. And so, um, in the, in the, uh, in the chapter, I presented some loading to say, if you wanted to improve someone's efficiency of movement, that if we can increase their capacities to generate maximal muscle strength, rate of force development, improve their, the, 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 you know, focusing on neural factors, right? Neural drive, those sorts of things, stretch, shorten cycle capacity, there is a there is a plethora of scientific evidence to show that these are these are ways that we can make a more, you know, economical human when they exercise and when they and when they perform. So that's what was in there in terms of our um, in terms of the loading parameters. It was to say that if you you know I kind of did a tip a, a three zone model a, a little table that I often use, where I said you know focus on your plyometrics or your zone one ballistic training. Um, or focus on your zone three, which is your heavy maximal muscle strength training and stay away from zone two, which is more that moderate load hypertrophy oriented training is typically how we see it. And I think I put a caveat in there. I'm actually not sure if it showed up in the chapter, but, um, you know, how you apply those methods over time and obviously how you target them for athletes in their preparation and when you use it and how you make sure that you sequence things properly is the real magic. I think of how, of how you of how you can create a more efficient athlete using uh, you know heavy heavy strength training and plyometric training and ballistic training. So um, that was the table. Um, I do believe as well another notion here that comes into play is the idea of strength reserve. Um, and I and I think I give the example in the chapter of a you know you can imagine a you know a a player like a rugby rugby player who needs to you know do some movement that you know, requires a certain level of strength for the sports skill. And you imagine, you know, their ceiling, let's say it's an upper body pressing type action. Imagine that their maximal muscle strength is they can press 120 kilos. 
versus a second athlete who can press 200 kilos. It was this notion as well that we can create uh, a more efficient athlete and one also who's more adaptable because you, you know, you're, you're operating at a lower fraction of your strength reserve by boosting that ceiling of strength. And I'm not saying that in all cases, in all instances, that needs to be the goal, but certainly from the standpoint of uh, creating adaptable athletes who can meet unforeseen demands, who can respond to environments where maybe a competitive skill now exceeds their strength capacity to be able to do this in different postures and positions. Um, I, I tried to highlight in the chapter that, you know, maximal muscle strength while be, you know, it's not the only factor. It certainly is a factor that I think we could put in that context of how to create a more adaptable athlete by boosting that ceiling and increasing that strength reserve. So there, there's a few things that I, I tried to tease out there in the, in the chapter. One thing I want to dive in on again, that's movement adaptability and going on that phrase that you, um, that your colleague came up with. And first point on that was being transfixed on a specific model. And I, in the notes that I fired over to you, tried to give an example of, of, of speed training in that, cause that's my mind. And that's what we, I seem to be seeing everywhere. I don't know if it's social media algorithms at work, Matt, but I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it everywhere, but you can, you can use other, other, other examples as well. And the pitfalls of, of doing that have been transfixed on a, on a specific model. And we're always trying to fit different athletes into those models that are in the textbook, like you mentioned, yeah. or in the, in, in yeah. the online course that I'm doing or whatever. So yeah. can you just talk to us about the, the potential pitfalls to do that and how we can help coaches that kind of stay away from that and, and go a different route? And what is that different route? I mean, I think, I think I will, I will, uh, I, I'll, I'll start with, um, super timely, by the way, I got a, I got a newsletter from Dan path yesterday, um, from the Altus crew. And Dan was talking about his, his approach to this problem. Right. And you know, what I love about Dan is he kind of simplifies this down and the guy is perpetually curious and uh, avoids that sort of single-minded thinking where, you know, you got a hammer and everything looks like a nail. And I think that what I like about this, and again, getting back to your question about how do we, how do we avoid pitfalls, right? Is I think you, you know, there, there, and I can try to do this in the chapter. There are absolutely positions and postures that are approximated by the world's best in various sports skills, sprinting, accelerating. And in the, in the, in the, um, in the chapter, I, there's a silhouette of two, um, uh, two elite sprinters and that silhouette is actually recreated from a real live situation of two sprinters coming out of the blocks. Both have different body size. They're both have different, you know, muscle architecture. They're different, you know, different body masses. There's clear differences in the physical natures of both of those individuals. Um, and you can see that they are moving differently. Um, but they are both approximating some key positions and postures that are absolutely essential for being able to effectively put forces into the ground to make your body go that way. And so I think starting point number one is we have to understand that. And it's like, I think this is the, this is the, this is the notion that you got to kind of learn the rules, then you can break the rules. It's really tough to come in and not have any rules and then just sort of like freelance it and, and say that, well, everything's variable and everything's self-organizing and everyone just sort of figures this out. That doesn't seem to be the case to me. Um, <laughs> if it was the case, I, we would have a whole lot more, you know, it'd be a whole lot more competitive. 
to be to be able to go against the world's best in, in sport. Like it's it's clear that there is there is an element to that, but there's also a need for understanding the basics of, of biomechanics and how those things happen. So starting point one is learn the rules before you break the rules. Um, starting point number two is a careful analysis. And again, in the in the um, chapter, I gave an example of an athlete that I worked with. And I can tell you, Rob, it's one of the best examples. It's anecdotal, but it's one of the best examples where you need to stay curious. And that would be my second key point here is um, a silhouette of, a, of a, an elite sprint speed skater that I used to work with. And I, I provided this um, uh, silhouette because this athlete did not skate like any other athlete in the in the in the sport and certainly didn't skate like the textbooks um when you looked at them they appeared to be quite sort of valgus at the knee there were sort of uh like you just didn't see the exact postures postures and positions that you often would see taught to coaches and i can remember so many coaches trying to fix her mm-hmm. trying to fix her and myself included with corrective exercises right i'm going to corrective exercise i'm going to correct your going to correct your your hip and your in your in your knee positions and i'm going to correct that through strengthening and you know blah 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 and it was all to no avail i mean this athlete never corrected anything because that's not how their bodies that's not how she did it but she still was able to effectively approximate positions and postures that she needed to and i credit two people, a guy named Gord Bosworth. He's a UK uh, physio slash uh, manual therapist in your neck of the woods. And uh, this athlete's coach, uh, this athlete athlete's coach was from China. And I don't know, I don't think it has so much to do with, I think actually think it was probably more to do with a language barrier initially that this coach had with her athletes that she found these really creative ways to explain technique to her athletes. And, and she really allowed, like, she couldn't use the textbook words because they just, that wasn't there for her. So her coaching was all by external cues, analogy, you know, like I want you to stay small here and make a big shape there. I want like the way she taught and spoke was like by necessity, it was different. And what she was able to do was to take this athlete who did not look like every other athlete who had different anatomy, different, different everything and to be able to create um, a framework for her to approximate the positions and postures she needed for her to be effective in applying energy into the ground or into the ice. And between this coach and Gord Bosworth, I can remember the day that this athlete showed up into the weight room and said, hey, Matt, I, I had a session with Gord last night and Gord, you know, Gord did a head-to-toe analysis on me and he just told me that from this point forward, I actually don't have to think any more about trying to create better alignment and better positions and postures according to the textbook. Essentially, was what she was saying. Essentially, what I do is normal for me, mm-hmm. and we're just going to leave it. And I can remember her face being like, and I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> we're leaving this because this is me. Mm-hmm. And man, what a liberating moment for that athlete where they were like, yeah, I'm not trying to change my mechanics now and change what I do to fit some mold or construct or some textbook image i am going to work with my coach to figure out how i need to hit the positions and postures that are right for me to be able to do what i need to do and we'll measure the effectiveness of that by how well i perform 
And uh, my Lord, was that ever a liberating moment for, for all of us and especially me because I was trapped as well. I was like yeah. trying to change something that was never going to change and honestly was counterproductive. It was a waste of energy. And so, you know, again, you learn the rules before you break the rules because you can't just show up there and like start making stuff up. Um, but then once you have that, you got to, you really have to approach your athlete in front of you for who they are, where they are and the context of, you know, what are the things I'm going to change? What are the things I'm going to leave? And, um, you know, I think on that notion uh, of, of like, you know, like it's one of the most important skills I think coaches need to take away from this is you got to break it down and, and you got to you got to really analyze it for for who that person is and be careful for uh, for the things that you want to change and why. Um, that's not to say that you leave everything alone. Certainly if things are causing pain if they put you at a greater risk for maybe an injury or whatever. Or if it's so far away from the basics in terms of how we apply energy into our world to maximize performance, you know, those are things we need to change and coach. But if an athlete is hitting positions and postures of interest and it's, it's working for them, um, we got to be very, uh, we got to really approach those situations delicately and, 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 and approach it with some curiosity before, before we start making big wild changes in how someone moves. I think that's a really good place to, to finish off, partly because you've got a meeting in five minutes that I need to make sure that I'm not responsible for making you late for, but I genuinely think it is a good place to wrap up. But Matt, thank you very much for joining me again for the third time. Last but not least, where can people get in touch with you, find out more about the stuff you've got going on online education-wise, social media, all the normal stuff? Absolutely. So um, number one is uh, my my Twitter and Instagram handles are at Jordan's at Jordan Strength. So you can follow me there. I try to keep my posts pretty tight, and I'm, I'm not you know try to try to not bombard people. Um, I have uh, and then my website. So if you go to www.jordanstrength.com, um, I've got uh, you know four courses that I offer there. Uh, you can buy them as sort of a package. We do course launches twice a year where we reduce the prices and we give a, you know, sort of a special incentive for people who, who sign up. So if you want to get the courses today, you can do it. If you want to wait until a launch, you can sign up on my newsletter and, uh, uh, or on my, on my, on my website and sort of get early access to that. Um, and, uh, free resources and all kinds of things are there. So, uh, for people who want to learn more, I think it's probably best to, to go there. And I try to put a lot of the a lot of the, you know, my approach, you know, putting the science into training and then, you know, using, you know, using my trying to, trying to bring everything together into a kind of a cohesive format to help, to help navigate this sometimes murky, but oftentimes exciting and fun world that we live in. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to connecting to people if they, if they want to learn more and, and just want to say to you, Rob, thanks so much for giving me an opportunity again to be on your show. Always love speaking to you and, uh, you're a gentleman and, uh, and I have great respect for you. So, much Thank appreciated. You. Thank you very much. I didn't pay you for that as well, so I, but I probably should do for that last little bit. Now I appreciate your time, mate. It's uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure, not honour to have you on again, and uh, take care and I hope I haven't made you late for your for your for your morning meeting. But chat soon. Cheers, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 374 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So Matt always, as always, does an amazing job of communicating very difficult topics in a great way so thank you very much to matt for giving up his time and jumping the podcast for a part three also big thanks to today's sponsors hawking dynamics i measure you hytro fusion sport 
and Output Sports. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I do always appreciate all their support. Thanks to you for tuning in, and I will chat to you next week.